0: Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Resource Families Thrive, podcast by Stanford Sierra Youth and Families. This is your host, Daniel Cedarquist, Resource Family Training Specialist with Pathways to Permanency. Remember to like, comment, and share on our social media posts. Get this information out there to anyone that might want to learn more about foster care and the needs of youth in foster care, because today we are going to be talking more about our kids and especially our kids that are receiving what we refer to as intensive service or therapeutic foster care services. We will get to our guests in just a moment. Of course, for any of our new listeners out there, I always like to start off with a little explanation of who we are. Stanford Sierra Youth and Families is a merged organization that has upwards of 150 years, maybe more, of experience within the greater Sacramento region, we provide a variety of different services throughout our 17-county service region. Any service that we offer is an in interest of supporting our mission statement, transforming lives by nurturing permanent connections and empowering families to solve challenges together so every child can thrive. So as I mentioned, we have a couple of repeat guests as well as one new one. So who wants to start us off?
1: Hi, I'll start us off. My name is Natalie, and I am one of our foster family agency social workers, as well as our therapeutic foster care clinician.
2: Hi, everyone. Again, my name is Kieran, and I am also a foster family agency social worker. In addition, I'm also the home-based shelter care
3: social worker at this time. Hello, my name is Miguel Smith. I'm the ISFC support counselor for the Pathway Supremacy Program.
0: And thank you for joining us, Miguel. I'm so glad we finally got you on here. So, Miguel, what does a support counselor do, In like, in a nutshell?
3: Uh, I simply support the longevity of placements with whatever the need is in the home with the youth or the resource parent until either permanency or transitioning to their permanent home or returning back to their home.
0: And how do you do that? What sort of things do you specifically focus on with the kids?
3: Um. It depends on if they have a mental health team or not. If they do, I plan around what their need is. A lot of it's um, interventions to develop coping skills um, with certain behaviors. Also working with independent living skills, some of the older youth, and also positive peer interactions. Um, It just depends on the family and the need and what team they have with
0: And so it kind of sounds like within our program, supporting those youth who are intensive needs, you're kind of a jack of all trades. Like if you're doing behavior support, you're doing positive interaction with the parents, you're doing independent living skills, you're kind of touching all the things where a child might need support.
3: Yes, and there's a lot of the areas in terms of support where the kids, we do work with need based on basic child development that they've been missing to get to where they are in their point in their
0: life. Who are these kids that need these special services? So Natalie and Karen, I had you on talking about what next level parenting was a couple episodes ago. So question for all three of you is who are the kids that wind up needing that next level support?
2: Um. In the mental health world, we often refer to what we called complex trauma. These are the kids that are coming in with various experiences of trauma um, that they've experienced while, um, while in the care of their birth family or family of origin, or while they're throughout their journey in foster care if they have transition from multiple homes. Um, and so what we often say in therapeutic crisis intervention, um, which is a training that we provide to our resource families and our staff at the agency, um, is that these are often pain-based behaviors are what we would describe our um, behaviors that are resulting due to the pain and the trauma and the experiences that our children have had in their lives.
3: A lot of the youth I serve either have a trauma history or, or behaviors that, um, that are outward that you can see physically that, that raise concerns for the people in their care. So those are the, usually the youth that we usually get.
0: And it makes it sound kind of scary. I'm not going to lie. You know, we're talking about externalizing behaviors or kids running away or, or having possible aggression. It, it sounds kind of scary, um how often are these behaviors happening for these kids?
1: I think it really depends. Um, Usually when we start off with an ISFC placement, those behaviors are occurring daily. Um, In order to meet that level of care, there has to be an intensity to the behaviors and frequency, a certain intensity and frequency. So while that does sound very scary at the out looking out, um, outward in, um, you know, our kids that are in birth families also have behaviors every day. You know, uh, I'm sure I as a teenager did not want to go to school every day and tried to sleep in. And that can be definitely something that our older kids struggle with. Or, you know, if you think of smaller, younger children, typically we talk about, you know, the terrible twos and tantruming. And so kids have behaviors. It's, it's okay. It's very normal. I think where it crosses into like not age appropriate and dangerous, you know, to themselves, that doesn't mean that, that it gets to that intensity all the time. And especially like Karen said, all of our parents are trained in therapeutic crisis intervention training, you know, prior to receiving a placement So that's really important because we want to de-escalate the kids, you know, if we see them starting to increase on the crisis scale. Um, What I think makes it
2: less scary for our resource families is, again, kind of going back to what Natalie said, our research families are receiving this high level of training that we have discussed previously in our Next Level Parenting podcast. Uh, we are training up our parents to be able to have the skill set to be able to support the youth that are deemed to be intensive services foster care. Um, and in addition, I think it's also about having um, a reframe of how you see our children. It's about understanding that it's not like, the behavior or the child, it's about what happened to them. And when our parents are to see it that way, it's about their experiences and what they've experienced um, that is causing these behaviors, these pain-based behaviors. I think that creates a really great reframe and allows for us to be able to see the child for everything that they are, not just their uh, intensive behaviors.
0: So with the behaviors that you've mentioned, you know, be it like getting aggressive with other kids in the home or refusing to go to school, Natalie, same, I know I did not want to go to school several times when I was a kid, I can think of specific times. Um, what sort of things do you do to support the youth and family to make sure that, you know, the child is getting to school or things do stay safe in the home?
1: one, it depends on the child and their age. Um, so I will say that in kind of their cognitive understanding. Um, so there's going to be a variety of things. If you have a younger kid, it might more be um, a reinforcement schedule um, that you do every day. They get, you know, that they complete a day of school. They get to, you know, maybe pick a prize out of the little prize, thing, you know, prize box that you have, uh, you know, that works for our younger kids because tangible reinforcements are age appropriate at that um, level. I think for our older kids, um, you know, asking is it something to do with friends? Is there a conflict going on? Um, another big one I see around school is um, maybe they actually have an undiagnosed learning disability or um, intellectual disability that we are not catching which happens and school is really difficult and they maybe think that they're dumb and every time in class, the teacher asks a question they can't answer. So then it, you know, they become the, the, the the quote unquote dumb kid. Um, So then I'd want to ask the teachers, you know, are they grasping the material? Do they need an individualized education plan? Um, Is there more going on? Because I think um, the important thing in the skill that our parents have and our staff have is to ask what's the need underneath the behavior um, because there definitely is something there. Um, so we have to ask the questions as the adults and the experience in the room to determine really what the cause of this behavior is, and then we can address that cause.
0: Miguel, you mentioned your work with the families earlier, like with positive parent interaction and all of those things. So, what sort of stuff have you done with with the families, the resource families or birth families directly?
3: Um, a lot of my work um is based a lot on building rapport and learning the family's culture and then revolving interventions and ways I work with them around that. So it's not me overhauling their home to appease a need so a lot of it is discussing normalizing and finding interventions that work within their home with step they already have it's natural a lot of a lot of dialogue a lot of trial and error and uh and collaborative and a collaborative effort so yeah it's a a team effort in finding a solution together there's no one solution that solves every problem or scenario so yeah, comes in with the family culture, blending of rapport and what they like to do, and then finding a formula within trial and error to make uh, some progress from time to time. With uh being persistent and patient is what I say, because mm-hmm. there's never one solution.
0: So you're not going into a family and saying, "All right, what you have to do is thing one, thing two, thing three, and then follow steps X, Y, and Z." And here's the specific formula. You're like going in and asking, what's going to work for you?
3: Yes, that's unrealistic to have a formula dealing with real life
0: people. To kind of also build on that, one thing I've always told families is you mentioned trial and error. And I want to really reinforce trial and error that when I was working as a support counselor many years ago, I'd have to tell people, well, even if something doesn't work, that's still good data because now we know what doesn't work. We're going to have errors along the way sometimes, and that's okay. And another thing that I would tell families when we would talk about an intervention, they might try something once and say, well, it didn't work. And I would ask them, okay, could you try it a few more times? Because what people don't get is that, as you mentioned, we're working with people, we're working with human beings. And so it's gonna be some trial and error, but also it can take a few times before something really clicks where you're doing the same thing that didn't work a couple times before it clicks and then it begins to work. What does the process look like when we're taking a child who has more complex needs, so be it intensive service foster care, therapeutic foster care, or what have you, what does it look like when we're getting them into our care and into a family?
1: Uh, So I used to cover placements prior to our merger with Sierra. So I think the best Uh, answer to that question is asking a lot of questions and being very curious. Uh, We want to make sure we're asking, you know, what the behaviors are. If there are known triggers, what works, what doesn't like we've talked about. So we're not reinventing the wheel, especially for our kids who have been in care for several years or have been in multiple uh, treatment programs. So I think that is a big piece of it, is information gathering. The second is uh, definitely finding the right family. Not every child is gonna be, um, you know, best served by every family. It's just, a, per- you know, we all have different personalities. We all have different ways of approaching things. We all have different communication patterns. So it is really important to try as best we can to really um, find, a good match um, for these kids because we want them to be supported, we want them to heal, we want them to achieve their goals, um, whatever that might be as far as, you know, mental health wise and permanency wise. So that's the the other step we, we talked about in Next Level Parenting. Our, our parents are highly trained, but they it also has to be a good fit for the youth and the youth has to feel safe and comfortable um, with our parents to even build that level of trust to be able to do these higher level interventions.
0: So when it comes down to it, the reality is that we're looking for families for our kids just as much as we're looking for kids for our families. You know, we, we want our resource families to be families. Part of being a resource is supporting them where they're at, meeting them where they're at. And as you mentioned earlier, Karen, really exploring what happens to these kids And how do we help them through that? Does anyone want to share a fun story that they've had with one of their clients? know,
1: absolutely. I have all of the great stories. Um, I think most of these happen in the car, to be honest with you. Uh, When we were in person doing uh, supervised visitations prior pre-pandemic, Um, and I have this little, you know, five, six-year-old little boy in my backseat, and he struggles in the car, so we try and keep him entertained, and all of a sudden, I just hear, Natalie, is a diamond sword the hardest sword there is? Natalie, do you think it could cut down a tree? Natalie, do you think Superman could stop a nuclear bomb? What about the Hulk? I don't think Bruce Banner could, but I think the Hulk could. What's the difference between a hydrogen bomb and a nuclear bomb? And I'm just sitting there stuck in traffic. Like literally there's, there's nowhere to go at this point. We're on the freeway and I'm absolutely trying my best. Thank God. uh, You know, I have, uh, a partner who's very into the MCU. So I was like, absolutely, Superman could totally stop a nuclear bomb. You're right, the Hulk could. And I said, you know, and if Superman misses the bomb for some reason, he can just fly around the world backwards and it spins back time because in my mind, I'm thinking he's never seen the original Superman with Christopher Reeve. So I've got this great backup answer um, that I could just give this kid. And he's going to be like, yes, absolutely, he could fly backwards and time would go back backwards because that's how time works and um yeah we had we had a great time talking about uh all of the things Hulk related and Bruce Banner related um I definitely did have to google the difference between the hydrogen bomb and a nuclear bomb because I was not exactly sure um Yes, one is vision and one is fusion. Thank you, Dandel. We know that. We just don't know which one anymore. Um, so yeah, I would have to say, uh, you know, he's he was an intense kiddo. Actually, all of us on the a podcast have at one-time worked with him. And um, every once in a while, you just get these really adorable, just pure kid moments and curiosity. And you just, just it just melts your heart because you're like, you know what? You're pretty awesome. Like I can't, I don't even know where you got. Like you're five. How did you know what a nuclear bomb was? First of all, like concerned on another level. But man, you just realize like how smart our kids actually are, how curious they are. They just want this like voracious appetite for learning things about the world and themselves. And it's just, it's the greatest thing.
3: Um, I don't have any particular stories just um just experiences during sessions because uh, a lot of my sessions or are, are usually preferred activities to um so they don't see it as a therapy session or anything like that um, so a lot of it is just seeing the kids in their true element, which is fun because they're they're not they don't have any worries and they're not worried about talking about any past trauma It's like a normal flow so there's nothing super structured and they're being their true self within whatever age group age group they're in mentally and they're, and they're comfortable. Um, I would say those those are the the stories, I would say the experiences that that I, I enjoy is just and then I mean after later you hear about all the other stuff. But having that moment for them to let everything down and just be a kid, which are which are the moments I, I enjoy.
0: It's something that I remember from being a support counselor that I really liked as well was, was getting to just spend time with the kids. And sometimes interventions really do look like we're playing games, but families don't always realize in the moment that play is like the beginning of attachment, that by playing with a child, you're building a relationship with them, that by doing a preferred activity, you're joining them where they are. And building that connection. And that's that connection is really where the healing begins from whatever it is that did happen to them.
3: I well, said so they also give information without even asking. Yeah. <laughs> All the answers you've been trying to get for weeks spill out unintentionally. Yep.
2: So after much thought, I do do recall um, an older intensive services foster care youth um, who was uh, 17 years old at the time, and I was um, brought in to start supporting some sibling visits uh, for for this youth because. They so visits with his siblings were in particular difficult because his siblings were uh, there were three of them. They were all about to get adopted as they were placed in, in an adoptive home, um, and there were some concerns that had come up. And again, likely through this this youth's um, own you know trauma and pain based behaviors, that he was having a really difficult time with the idea that his siblings were being adopted, um, and just you know. A lot of our youth do struggle with that when other siblings do get adopted out and they are still residing in foster care. Um, And he had a difficult relationship with his siblings adoptive family, um, in particular, the parents and so through time um, and a lot of preparation ended up going into these visits and not on anything I had done or even his resource family had done. He had taken initiative to prepare activities and purchase treats that because he did work a a part-time job place. So for him to come from a place to cultivate that himself was a beautiful thing. And as visits continued, there came a time where he really wanted to extend this sort of um, like connection with his uh, sibling's adoptive parents. And I think he used to work at um, a coffee shop and he ended up bringing um, a bag of coffee for his uh, sibling's adoptive parents. And it was such a small but very kind gesture that you could see the work that he was doing within himself to just come to accept the idea of his siblings being adopted and that this was the family they were going to be with. Um, And so that's just another small example of how our kiddos really work hard on trying to come to an understanding of the difficult things they often have to navigate.
0: What would you say is one of the biggest myths about the kids that we're talking about today? What what do people not necessarily understand about kids that are considered intensive service?
1: Uh, I would say that they, uh, the biggest myth is that we can't help that they're hopeless, that they're too old, uh, too many behaviors, too pain-based to be um, healed in any type of way. Uh, I'd say that's the biggest myth I think out there. I understand, you know, parents, hesitation. Um, These these are, you know, scary things to talk about, to deal with, to see your kids go through. And I think that's why we really talk a lot about in pre-approval training and the pre-service training for ISFC and um, all of our next level parenting about what to do. Because I think when you're prepared and you know how to intervene in those moments, you're much more confident and that way, when we have you know, parents who are confident in their skills and can keep their cool, um, you avoid a lot of those escalations. You avoid a lot of those crisis moments that the myths are based on and exaggerated from.
3: I would agree with Natalie in the, the fact that the progress point in terms of people believing that they're, they are who they are, um, services helps a lot. I mean when, with these kids, when they do get in where the home they're in, the training the resource parents have, and the teams they get around, progress definitely happens and it it may not look like it happens on the outside, but as uh, Kieran had to order her story, it, it happens over time, so that is a myth I would say that services and the program helps out with a lot. With.
2: I would like to add that I think the big misconception with especially our intensive services foster care youth is that, you know, if you were pursuing adoption with these kiddos, things are never going to be perfect, but come the point of adoption, there's like, I think Miguel and Natalie also spoke to this. It takes a lot of time and patience to work with our kiddos that are need, have these high intensive needs, and it's never going to look picture, picture perfect by the time you come to a point of where you are adopting this child. The work continues, and it's a lifelong commitment. You signing up to be a lifelong parent or adult in this Child's life is signing up to continue that work throughout their lifetime. And so I think that definitely is another myth that it, everything has to be this level of perfection when it comes down to providing permanency.
0: But at the same time, even having any child signing on is, it is going to be a lifetime of work and a lifetime commitment. And so I think that people sometimes think that this is going to be something else. When realistically, parents are already going to be putting in that work, regardless of how the child came into their lives. One big question that I do have if no one steps forward to support these kids, where do they go?
1: I think the concern with our kids, if they don't find this permanent home and permanent connection, is that you know, they're going to be consumers of mental health services as adults, and that um, is not an easy system to navigate. Um, They're probably going to have, like Kieran mentioned, more complex trauma, more compound trauma, and they are not going to have a support system to help them navigate that and support them through that because they were never given the chance to be part of a family. And all of our children um, need need family, we don't ever um, grow out of needing family. So I think that when we we hear about these kids and we talk about these kids, it really is the largest need in our community because these are the kids that are going to age out and face this world alone. And that is a very, very scary moment in time to, to think that might happen to our kids.
0: Um, to be To clarify a little bit further though, if, for instance, you would get a placement referral call for a child today and there was nowhere, the let's say the placement unit said, this is your last, help us Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're our last hope. Like, where does this child wind up going if we don't have a family that's suitable for them?
2: So what we often see with our high needs kiddos that cannot maintain placement in a resource family setting is they often are transitioned to short-term residential treatment programs, also known as STRTPs with the continuum of care reform. Um, they, we've shifted from group homes, but that was the form, former term that we use. Sometimes it is still currently used today, but um, short-term residential treatment programs are facilities um, where it's it's like congregate care, and we as we know, our children do not thrive and um, cultivate those strong connections with a uh, trusting adults. Trusting adults they will have lifelong within these congregate care settings, and so um, it is the very it's a reality that is very difficult for a lot of us who work in child welfare to. Um, accept because, we know, there are families out there that can learn the skill sets, be trained up, have the supports from an FFA um, or other, you know, other county agencies to be able to support these kiddos that are, are coming into care with these high intensive needs. You
0: know, considering there, there are families out there that have the skill set, that are nervous, that have some roadblocks to doing this, they're, they're scared, they hear the things that the news says or that TV shows or movie says, what is, how do we measure success? What does success look like?
1: I think like we've talked about maintaining a stable placement is goal. Number one for all of us from the foster care, uh, you know, pathways side of the aisle. Um, So that's one success is placement stability. I think the second success is, you know, identifying the triggers and getting those coping skills in place to deal with those triggers. Um, So when we talk about that, it means that the, you know, the kiddo can use those skills in the moment, apply them, they're successful at returning to kind of their baseline level of functioning, And then rejoining like whatever activity that might be, whether it's an activity at home or rejoining the classroom. So it's not necessarily that the trigger is gone and everything's peachy and rainbows. Um, It's more along the lines of like, do we give them the skills To deal with the adversity that they are going to be faced with on a daily basis because a lot of our kids can't tell us what their triggers are or they don't you know they don't know when they're coming on and that's okay we all understand that i think it's really preparing them in those moments of um and this really overlines with miguel's role a lot as those really hard intervention skills those really solid coping skills that the foster parents miguel's role um, reinforce and help you know if we have to do it with you, we have to do it with you for a while um, until you can do it by yourself. Um, So I think those are pretty much the two goals that we try and focus on a lot. um, Because otherwise, I think it would get very overwhelming if we were to, you know, we want you to process your trauma and do all this. And a lot of our kids aren't ready for that.
0: And along the way, kind of teaching our families, I think one of the skills is teaching our families to measure those small successes. You know, we had a quiet day today. Kiddo made it to school every day this week. He helped me with the dishes and I didn't even have to ask him to. And really looking at those small things. And I think a message for families out there as well is remember that when you are in the thick of it, progress is going to be harder for you to see. That sometimes what will happen is one of us will come in and we won't have been there for a week or so. And we will look around and say, things are really different right now. And it won't click until someone from the outside like us has come in and said that. All right. So my final question for everybody, why should I be an intensive service foster care resource parent?
3: Something you look deep down in your heart about. You can't convince you it's something you want to do. Not, isn't that something we can help you with? We're just here to support if you do decide. It's all a you thing.
2: I think that all of the youth that we serve at Stanford Sierra are extremely unique and have so many amazing qualities about them. But I truly have to say there is something very, um, very special, very different about working with our intensive services foster care youth because they. The, the needs that they come into your home with and how you're going to be navigating the support that they need, it is such a rewarding and cup-filling experience, in my opinion. And I think we can all agree, I, we have many stories working in child welfare, but some of those really, really special stories, like some of the ones we shared today, come from these unique um children that are coming in with these high intensive needs and so if i can if you would like to fill your cup fill your heart in this very very difficult yet rewarding way absolutely recommend becoming an isfc resource
1: family i am going to take my own advice and explore the need underneath that behavior of the potential resource family. So here we go. I think that comes uh, like we've talked about from a place of fear and a specifically that they will be in it alone, that they are solely responsible for all of the mental health needs of this child. And if they don't meet them, it's their fault. And that's absolutely not true. Um, You're never alone in this. You have this wonderful team that we have here represented here today. Um, You have therapists, you have rap teams, you have county social workers who want the best for their children um, on their caseload. You have multiple layers of support like we have talked about to help you gain those skills and implement the, them in the moment to make sure that you are keeping the child in your home safe. I think the worst feeling any of our foster parents can feel is alone. And so my, my pitch, my elevator pitch is that, um, this will not be a journey that you will ever take without us. Um, you can call us during the day, after hours, on a holiday, on a weekend, because we have on-call services, um, for that support, for that, you know, hey, this behavior happened. I just need to process it. Um you know, we can increase intensity and frequency of services to meet the needs so that, you know, we get those coping skills in there, we address those mental health needs along along with you supporting the youth when we are not there. Um, So I think that is my 60-second elevator pitch um, to foster parents of, yes, it's scary. I don't ever want to lie. Yes, it can be challenging. Um, And you're never in it by yourself. And the moment you feel that, reach out.
0: Well, I appreciate all of you again for being here. Thank you so much for, for coming on, for talking more about our kids. I'm sure I'll get to pick on all of you at some point or another to join me yet again. Um, Miguel, thank you again for joining us for the first time. No problem. And for everyone out there, do remember to like, comment, share on all of our social media posts. Um, You can always find more information at our website, ssyaf.org. We do have quarterly information sessions about becoming a next-level parent, so doing the ISFC or TFC or HBSC work that we've talked about previously, or you can give us a call at 916-368-5114, and until we get to talk to you again, I hope you keep on thriving.